Welcome to Attached Season 2, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good and the bad and the ugly advice about these relationships that maybe we shouldn't be attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of those bad relationship advice using science. Ah, yeah. yeah. Was that good for season two? Was that a good intro for the science of season two? I think it's a good intro for season two. Really, really bring in the the creepiness. I love it. I'm there. I'm here for (laughs) it. That's my role on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Today, Jacob's going to bring us something fun and poppin' culture. Then, in the Academic Deep Dive segment, we're going to discuss an academic article, Machine Learning Uncovers the Most Robust Self-Report Predictors of Relationship Quality. A very fascinating study with a very new method for all of us. I'm really excited to learn about that. And then, in Good or Bad Advice, we are going to discuss some advice about communication I found on TikTok. Surprise, surprise, you guys. Um, I love these. I watch some of them. I can't wait to talk about them. Fun. (laughs) If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it in. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at attachedpodcast. Instagram us at attachedpodcast or Facebook at Attached Podcast. Or you can go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message there. But before we get to our wonderful episode one of season two, how is everybody doing? Tell me stories. Well, first of all, can I just say it is so, it's such a balm for the soul to be talking with the two of you. Oh, Um, same. It's, I I know, I typically brag about Iowa on this podcast, (laughs) if you've been listening for a while. I feel like that might be Um, an understatement. Yeah, (laughs) a little. But Iowa, well, especially where I live in Iowa, has been kind of a crazy place the last couple of weeks. So depending on when you're listening to this, we just got, two weeks ago, got hit by what is called a derecho. Derecho. Yeah, Mm. which is basically... Mm straight line wind that there was gust of 140 miles an hour where i live like literally 100 year old oak trees just tipped (gasps) over houses destroyed it's not a pretty sight so we were without power for about 10 days Mm -hmm. and ended up just relying on the kindness of strangers many of whom listen to this podcast so thank you those who let us crash in your house for a few nights finally got power back to our house a few days ago and it is nice to be home but Mm. other than that (laughs) you know other than a hurricane coming through iowa iowa pretty good i mean moved to the midwest not only do we have terrible winters but we also get hurricanes in the summer so (laughs) there's that oh my gosh i'm so glad you guys ended up up safe through all that yeah scary yeah it was pretty scary my parents-in-law were in town visiting us and they were staying at an airbnb because we have lots of cats and chelsea's stepmom is allergic to cats so they stayed at they always stay in airbnb and they literally couldn't drive to our house they live they were like a mile away from us but there were so many trees down we didn't get to see them that day we didn't see them till the next afternoon just because of all the trees that were down oh my gosh so yeah but you know i'm here 
I still don't have internet. Our little guy is oh, um, happy and healthy, and Chelsea and I still love each other. So at the end of oh, nice. a natural disaster, I'm going to count yeah. that as a win. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 100%. Nice. In the middle of a pandemic, immediately oh. after childbirth. Yeah. 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 You know. I want to give you some more credit there. Yeah. Yeah. Good night. <laughs> well, starting so. a new semester. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a pile on. It's a, it's a boost. I'm trying to give you a boost. Oh, appreciate it. Yeah. 2020, <laughs> the best year yet. <laughs> <laughs> what? So we have officially started virtual first grade in my house. Mm. Woohoo! Woohoo! And my six-year-old has at least two lessons a day. They're both pretty brief. And I have sat in on almost every one so far. And every single day, I learn something new. <laughs> so... <laughs> We need to bring that teacher out of the podcast, huh? He is so good. I have been so scared all along about what this was going to look like. And for reasons in our own family, we decided that Charlotte definitely needed to do virtual classroom this fall. Mm -hmm. And he has adapted this first grade classroom that would typically be super hands-on into this incredible online learning environment. And I am so impressed. And every single... I have known zero of the things my daughter has learned from. Amazing. So, which is great from like, I feel like I'm I'm also getting something out of listening to the class, but I also feel like, oh my gosh, what was my education? <laughs> Why do I know not? I mean, they have learned about SpaceX rocket ships and pers- they've read personal letters from Gandhi to his family. They've watched videos from Woodstock. They've learned about polygons. Which um, I probably sign me up. I want to take this course. I know, and it's all while he's being super soothing. Oh my! Yeah, so it's been actually a really good experience that I has. I've just questioned some of my own education, quite a bit of it actually. And there was one day last week where Charlotte, my daughter, said, "Did you know that Abraham Lincoln died a year before the Civil War ended?" And one by one, all the adults in her family that she told us to was like, "That's not accurate. No, no, no. But that's okay." And then each of us Googled it, so she was right. <laughs> And the teacher was right. <laughs> and so the knowledge is rippling out through the family, which Amazing. is a really good side effect. A real, a real systemic learning system yes. we have here. Yep. I love it. Yes. We also started online school with my second grader today. It was a half day. We were kind of nervous because we're switching school formats. We switched from a Montessori school and we're diving into a public school. Super excited to do it. And then the pandemic happened and online school happened. So I was particularly nervous because not only was it in a new environment, but it was also online. So... I was probably more nervous than she was, because of course. So the day before school started, I got a message, everybody did, it wasn't just me, from the principal. And it was the kindest, most enthusiastic voicemail, how she was so excited, the mascots, the bears. And the principal was talking about how we just can't wait to get our bear family back together. Some of us will be online and some of us will be in person. And it just was so comforting and amazing and I just appreciated it so so much I have never gotten a message from a teacher or a head of school or a principal like that before and I just I don't know if they do it every year or just because everything but it was fantastic I've thoroughly enjoyed the messages and then today was the first day of online class and you know it was pure chaos but that's okay yep 
Yeah. Oh, that's that's lovely. It was a half day and there was a good five minute stretch where the teacher was trying to get the attention of one student to put their mic on because we could hear all of the conversations in their household. There was another moment because the kids are supposed to sit straight up in their desk where the kids, oh yeah, their seat, you know, they're supposed to sit straight and pay attention, Mm -hmm. right? They're not supposed to turn around Mm -hmm. or fidget or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd be bad in that class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, most of us would be. I heard a student's mic was on and I heard the mom say, you turn your ass back around. And I was like, yes. (laughs) Oh my goodness. On the first day, rough, (laughs) rough feedback. Yikes. I mean, I laughed. Maybe that was uh, an inappropriate reaction. And me. I was like, yeah, you get them, mom. And then for another, a 10 minute stretch, maybe even a 15 minute stretch, the teacher was reading a book to the kids and accidentally muted herself. (laughs) So she kept on flipping the pages, but no one could hear. And we kept like, there's like several parents that were like, um, ma'am, we can't hear you. Um, ma'am, bless her heart. And then she figured it out. So, but it's fine. Everybody's learning and we're doing this together. And it was, it was an adventure for sure. When you said it's fine, I think of that meme. Have you seen it where like the dogs at the kitchen, the house on fire, like everything's fine. Yes. It's fine. This is completely fine. It's not quite there, but it was a, a humorous first day and I'm sure it can only go up. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships comes from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, for the first episode of season two, set an expectation super normal. What you got for us? So... I know you have both missed me talking about reality television and the hiatus over the summer where we were focused on that book club. I know that the two of you were like, how, how can we go on if we don't hear (laughs) Jacob talk about reality television? Those words definitely came out of my mouth. So before I hop into to what I'm going to talk about today, I need to give you an update though on (laughs) Chelsea and I's viewing habits, because I think you will both appreciate this. Oh, okay. Mm. So remember, I started watching Schitt's Creek last fall during the podcast so we could talk about it. Yes. And I invited Chelsea to watch with me. And she was pregnant at the time and finishing up her last year of graduate school. She's like, no, I can't do this. I was like, okay. So I watched the whole thing. So this summer. So I did all the seasons. Yep. Mm -hmm. I did. I watched all. I mean, there were like 20 minute episodes. It's real fast. This past like quarantine summer, she started watching Schitt's Creek. And the other day she was watching an episode Mm. and she's like, Jacob, I'm so mad at you. Like, what? Why? She's like, you watched this without me. Mm-hmm. I can't believe you did that. This is so great. And she's like, <laughs> she like went through our Instagram, actually the attached Instagram was like, look at all these quotes. I just love this. This is so great. Aww. So point being that you need to watch Shit's Creek with your, with your partner. Don't, yes. don't miss out on that. Anyway, so for pop and culture, I want to talk about new Fox reality television series called Labor of Love. Have okay. either of you heard of this? Watched it? I feel like I've heard about it, but I also am very familiar with the phrase labor of love. So they may have cross wires in my head. Yeah. So the premise of this reality television show is there is this woman and she is wanting to start a family. She's in her 
late 30s, early 40s, and she wants to have a few kids, but she hasn't been able to find the right person. So she has come on to, to this reality television show to find somebody who she can have a child with, right? So if you're familiar with like The Bachelor, you know how there's one bachelorette in this case and then a whole bunch of dudes. It's not just about falling in love. It's about, okay, we're going to meet each other. We're going to maybe fall in love, but then we're going to have a baby and then we're going to figure everything else out. And so through this process, they go on like crazy dates. So the first thing they do is a group activity, like the first episode. Yeah. They have all of the gentlemen go into little pods uh-huh. to make sure they are fertile. Oh my God. <laughs> I just, at this point, all I can think of is I can't believe reality television is now bringing innocent children into the mix, but go on. <laughs> it's come to this. It's so come to this. I won't, I won't give you any of the spoilers of, of what happens during the season sure. because I know you are both like on the edge of your seat and can't wait to watch it. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk about the process that I think they do really well okay. and other stuff that I think is really maybe problematic for a relationship. First, I think showing that relationships can be created in diverse ways without the typical, mm-hmm. this is the step that has to go to this step and then to yeah. the next step and then to the next step is really important, right? I think there can be a lot of good that comes through divorce, uh, div, div, divorce, diverse, oh my. Oh. <laughs> diverse relationship formation. This show processes. took a turn. <laughs> wow. Diverse relationship formation processes, yeah. right? So, you know, typically people will think like, oh, we meet, we date, we fall in love, we get yeah. married, we have kids, we do all, but it doesn't necessarily have to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, what I appreciated about this show is it shows that you can form a family in a lot of different ways, right? Maybe reality television isn't necessarily the best way to go about it, but you can. (laughs) Oftentimes, culture you're embedded in prescribes what your relationship should look like. And I think it's good when you have times when people push back on that, when they're like, no, we can show diverse family formation pathways and they can be healthy. Unfortunately for the woman in the show, it doesn't Uh turn out that way. By your face, your face shifted. Well, and so I think that that points to the uh, the problematic process, if there's probably many, but especially one that I think is demonstrated in there. You should probably go on more than two or three dates before you decide to have a child with someone. I think that getting to know the type of person that you are going to co-parent with, whether or not you're in a relationship with them romantically or a committed relationship with them, makes a huge difference, right? If you have a kid together... In some capacity or another, you are connected to that person throughout your whole life. And so I think that there's this, on the one hand, I really appreciated that, hey, there's not one path to creating a family. On the other hand, because these reality television shows always condense things, it's let's speed up that path really quickly. Right. And, you know, timing doesn't necessarily have to, there's no like set timing that says, okay, if you date this long, then you're going to be happily married. Or if you don't, you're not going to be happily married. But I do think that there, it is important to be intentional and thoughtful about who you are going to have a child with. Because as a new father myself, I know how intense it can be, right? And the person that you choose to partner with who is going mm-hmm. to be your co-parent is really needs to be someone who you trust, right? who has, can mm-hmm. be responsible, and who will show up for not only uh, kid, 
but also for you as a co-parent in whatever capacity that might be. Labor of Love wasn't the wasn't my favorite reality television show, but in the age of COVID, when all of the good reality television got sucked away, it was a nice band-aid uh-huh. over the lost seasons of Love Island and Bachelor in Paradise. Oh yeah, what travesties! Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was a travesty of yeah. all the things we've lost, you know, in COVID. That's the yeah, one. yeah. Re- reality television is is right up there. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. These totally. these messages aren't warped at all by a pandemic. This is totally. <laughs> I know that was really bad. I'm sorry. It's not gonna be. It's a joke. I meant it as a joke. I know. <laughs> oh. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Machine Learning Uncovers the Most Robust Self-Report Predictors of Relationship Quality Across 43 Longitudinal Couple Studies, written by Dr. Samantha Joel at Western University and 85 of her romantic relationship research colleagues, 85, amazing, recently Published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, these authors explored why some romantic relationships are happier, more satisfying, and why they thrive more than others. Specifically, they wanted to test whether we can predict the relationship quality of romantic relationships, and if so, which aspects of our relationships predict relationship quality over time. Previous science on this topic has focused on individual variables, such as age at first marriage, personality traits like neuroticism, depression, attachment style, or education. Other studies have focused on partners' perception of the relationship and their relationship experiences, such as conflict, power, sexual satisfaction, or intimate partner violence. But these authors point out that these many studies over the last 20 years are rarely tied together into a cumulative collection of knowledge. Overall, what do we know about what makes for a happy couple and how the happiness of a couple may change or evolve over time? Sarah, tell us how they did this remarkable study, please. And also, what did they find? What makes relationships What predicts relationship quality? So I'm going to try my best to explain how they did this research because it is very complex and super interesting, but it's also a methodology that I was not familiar with before Mm. reading this paper. You're not an uh, expert in machine learning, Sarah? I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) I, I don't know if I was supposed to become one along the way, but I feel like now that I've read the kind of cool stuff you can do with it, it it feels like something I should get more interested yeah. in. Next step, um, next step. Yeah, next yes, study, right. definitely. That's right. Yes. I'm going to tackle that right away. What I really like about why they did it, though, is, as you just said, Patricia, that um, it was a focus on kind of bringing together the collective strength of multiple different research studies to be able to answer a bigger question about cumulatively what might we be able to take away about mm. how relationships are higher in quality and more satisfying, which is kind of one of these basic boilerplate questions that we really want to answer in relationship science. And so what they did was they got data from 43 different longitudinal studies of romantic relationships that were all dyadic, meaning they all had both both partners reports about themselves and the relationship in the project. So those 43 projects were funded by 39 different grants 
Wow. They included a total of 11,196 romantic couples that were recruited across 29 research labs, all of which were in Western countries, but were not just the United States. So it's their international samples. And across all of those different studies, they used a total of 2,413 mostly self-report measures collected at baseline. So it's it's a ton of data. So although I don't believe machine learning is necessarily referring to the fact that it requires a large machine, it feels like with that amount of data, you really, you really might need a lot of processing speed, right? <laughs> it's a ton of information. And those couples were tracked over an average of four time points over an average of 14 months. So they were longitudinal. So they were captured over the course of about a year or two over at least kind of four measures on average um, to see how that relationship quality can change. So they use the baseline measures to predict relationship quality at baseline. What is their current relationship quality that their a partner is reporting based on any of these measures? And then they looked at it at follow-up, the, the final time point that that any couple was interviewed. Mm. And they also looked at change over time across all of the times that couples were interviewed. And so relationship quality, their their definition, although I think that seems really intuitive, is a person's subjective perception or their evaluation that their relationship is relatively good versus bad. And that is usually measured as some sort of relationship satisfaction measure, how satisfied I am with my romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. And they also looked at at commitment as a dependent variable, but I'm going to talk about that a little bit less. So then they excluded measures of trust, intimacy, love, and passion, because although they could be predictors of relationship quality, it's possible they could also be indicators of relationship qualities. They did a lot of intentional analytic steps up front to really think about how to answer this research question in a really meaningful way, which I really appreciate. And I like how they are separating out predictors and indicators, because predictors Mm -hmm. is something completely separate from relationship quality that, like it says, will predict or we can expect relationship quality, where an indicator is something that might be a linked or part of relationship quality. So right. I really like they that separated that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important. And they, they have tested that as well with those indicators in there. And they make all of this fully available. It's totally open science. So anyone can see how they went step by step, which I really appreciate. So they used what's called random forests, which is okay. a machine learning method that can handle all of these different predictors at once. And it does that by testing a random collection of some of the predictors with a random set of some of the participants of these studies to estimate the ability of each predictor variable in explaining differences in relationship quality. And then they test these predictor variables again on a separate random set of participants to see if what they found in the first group kind of strengthens or kind of holds true against a different random set of couples. And then they repeat this essentially thousands of times and average these results together Mm. using what I am still imagining to be a very large machine. With pulleys and levers? Yes, right. Yes, yes. yes, yes. They must have been exhausted. (laughs) And then in averaging these results together, it starts to be able to tell them how much of relationship quality 
that dependent variable they're able to predict and which predictors make the biggest contributions to explaining relationship quality. Mm, so, so as they sorted that out, they essentially had 21 models where they found the predictors that had the most effect, that had the, the strongest link to relationship quality, and they had seven sets of predictors for baseline for that follow-up, that long-term follow-up, and then for change. And they tested those 21 sets of predictors on each of the 43 data sets. Wow. And then they took those results and did a meta-analysis to combine the effects of all of these findings. I know. It took me a long time to be able to read that that piece of the paper <laughs> and then to be able to digest it and feel like I could remotely explain it to somebody. And, and should any of the authors listen, I hope I've remotely done your effort justice because it is really fascinating. And, and amazing. And, and so important to think about from a team science perspective to bring all of these different studies and the power of all of this different data to bear to answer this question. So what did they find? Because that's yes. far more interesting for, for our you know, usual listener. I think what they found was for baseline relationship satisfaction, actor reported, meaning my own individual variables, what I reported was four times as powerful as what my partner reported. And combining reports from mine and my partners did not add any ability to predict anything above what I myself say. Yes. So specifically what they found was that people's own judgments about their relationship explained about 45% of their relationship satisfaction at the beginning of a study. So what I am describing about my relationship, how committed I perceive my partner to be, how appreciative I am, how satisfied in our sexual relationship I feel, how satisfied I perceive my partner to be, mm. and the conflict we have in our relationship, my perception of that, is what explains my relationship quality at this at baseline, at the same time point, my current relationship satisfaction. These variables also predict some amount of relationship satisfaction at the end of the study as well. But whereas it predicts 45% of my relationship satisfaction at the beginning, it predicts only 18% at the end oh, of the study. So it drops. Mm-hmm. The, the power of these predictors' abilities to predict mm-hmm. decreases over time. What they also found was that my partner's judgments of the relationship did not add any information, has no bearing on how satisfied I am in a relationship, And neither did a person's personality or personality traits or individual traits, which is fascinating. Yeah, especially Uh, given the amount of research on personality and relationships. Yes. And so they, they, at first they found that some of these variables were meaningful. So how satisfied I am with, with life, my depression, my agreeableness, my attachment anxiety, some of these held a little bit of weight, predicted a small amount of relationship satisfaction, but when modeled with, when tested with my perceptions of the relationship, they add no additional information. So it is really about my self-reports about my perception of the relationship and other variables that we would consider all the time, at least historically, we used to really believe is very powerful, like cohabiting status or whether we're dating or married or whether we have children mattered little for predicting relationship quality, which is so fascinating. Yeah. And none of these variables predicted whose relationship quality would increase versus decrease over time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which, which part of what they say is that it's possible that my self-report of my relationship is not necessarily how we can tell 
future changes in satisfaction. And there might just be other better ways that we can measure the qualities of relationship to predict change. But, but it, so that's what they found. Yeah, I think it would also be fascinating if they included those observational research and looking at how couples actually interact and seeing if that had any additional ex explainer in it too. That could be really fascinating. Yeah, so they do say, and it's uh, there's an overwhelming amount of information in this project, and I don't mean overwhelming like it overwhelms the reader. I think they've done an incredible job of writing this in a way that distills this very complicated project down. They do reference that most of the measures at baseline were self-report, so it might be a limitation in my understanding of this paper that there might be some objective, but I think most of how we do relationship science is asking people how they feel. And right, they and, think. and seemingly that's important because it predicts... Yeah very well relationships. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I think that's a takeaway, uh, a very basic takeaway that how you feel about your relationship really matters. What you think is going on between you and your partner matters for how satisfied you feel and how happy you are in your relationship. I think that's, I mean, I think that's a, a basic kind of first line takeaway, but I also think if they can't predict change in relationship quality from these baseline characteristics about how the partnership is working, it might be, I don't know, but it might be especially important to keep putting work into your relationship and paying attention to context and, and other possible stressors that impact how you're connecting. I mean, I think the specific variables that they found that were especially important might kind of indicate that in general, a person who can form a relationship where they're able to prioritize appreciation and sexual satisfaction and minimize conflict and also- or Minimize poor conflict. Yes, yeah, yes. And then being committed or demonstrating being really responsive and, and being an active listener to mm -hmm. your partner that yeah. in a way that, that's intentional enough they can perceive it. Those are some ingredients that contribute to a satisfying romantic relationship. But there's also no death nails here, which I, yeah. which I think is important. There was no like cohabitation status. I, I live with my partner before we were married was, right. is not something that's an eventual. So sometimes I think that we look for, well, what's the red flags early on? So many red flags. And there might be in your specific relationship that are important. They didn't find any kind of big issues here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated this study the work that went into it and like all the things that you said Sarah too in reading it it's it's it takes a while to figure out what they did but once you can because just because I'm not familiar with it but once you can see it you can just see the innovation the importance mm -hmm. of this study for sure also in reading this outline I was today years old when I learned that death nails wasn't spelled oh. nails as in n-a-i-l-s yeah. <laughs> oh so I, I learned that's, yeah, I'm I pretty that's... sure I thought it was like, you know, like there's the death nail is like the final nail oh, in the coffin. In the coffin? But yeah, but oh, that's, I was... <laughs> that's not what it is. And I had to kind of Google that and figure that out. But one of the things that I thought was so important is this idea at baseline, they could be, your perception predicted how satisfied you were going to be in your relationship. And most of my experience in working with couples is with clinical couples. You know, we do research on relationship satisfaction as well, but you know, in my, my experience, a lot of times when people get together, they're not very happy. And those are the ones that later end up in the therapy room, right? Because they've had this place where at baseline, and this is not an exact thing because we're not following people from like the time they partner up 
to that. But what kind of rang true to me as a clinician is this idea that often the way people create their relationship at the beginning is going to be pretty consistent and have mm. the ability to predict their relationship mm. satisfaction. And here, like you lose some of those variables across time. But I do think it shows that things don't change in a relationship typically because they couldn't predict change. And, you know, maybe there's other variables. They tend to kind of go as they've been going. And I think that it's important to recognize that how you feel about your relationship when it begins might be pretty indicative of how you're going to feel about it across time as well. That's not exactly what they were testing here. But in extrapolating those results, I think shows that there are certain things that are important. And if those things are important in the beginning, they're probably going to be important throughout the life course too. Because how long were these longest studies? I forgot about that. Two years. It's just two years. But I also wonder to, to counter that slightly because what at baseline has so little prediction of the follow up, the longitudinal, if maybe things can change a lot in a in kind of like a microcosm type of way and how we it, it's more of like a day-to-day thing like how we feel about our relationship today will predict our satisfaction but how we feel about our relationship today might not predict our satisfaction in in two years because That's things true. change but i could see it either way one thing also that was a little bit concerning to me and i'm wondering if it was concerning to you guys is that partner effects didn't yeah. really matter yeah. Which mm-hmm. when partner affects is like how my partner feels affects my relationship quality, which is kind of, I guess, the crooks, should we say, of, of family and systems therapy. It was kind of surprising to me that it didn't have an effect and it didn't contribute at all. And I'm wondering what you guys think about that. Is it similarly concerning to you or do you interpret it a different way? Yeah, I think I interpret it a little bit differently because how my partner feels impacts how my partner feels. How I feel impacts how I feel. Yeah. But those are those initial predictors are our own perceptions of what's going on in the relationship. So it makes absolute sense to me that how responsive I feel my partner is impacts mm. how how satisfied I am in my relationship. But it's also true for my partner. How responsive they feel I am contributes to how satisfied they are in the relationship. I think I had an opposite reaction in terms of the perceptions of the relationship are really what matter here. Personality didn't matter. Individual yeah. traits didn't matter. The demographic characteristics of the relationship didn't matter. And it was really about my perception of how we interact. And that's really all I can capture in mm-hmm. mostly self-report data, right. right? I can't capture what that objectively looks like, what that interaction looks like from an objective kind of third party. And so all, all we have are that my self-reports predict my self-reports, but those are still self-reports about our relationship interaction, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's my perception of what my partner does that's important for me. And how satisfied I am with our sexual relationship is still something about our relationship Mm -hmm. and important for how I then kind of overall feel. Yeah, I think too, like when you're talking about it from like a systems perspective, that would make a lot of sense to me too because my view of what's going on the relationship is my experience of that relationship and therefore what's going to predict whether or not I'm satisfied. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's interesting because your partner's does. So in other words, like your partner could be really unhappy and you could be really happy. Like you could have, you could think, Oh, my sex life's great. And your partner could think like, Oh, our sex life isn't great. 
and you are going to be more satisfied than your partner is, even though you're existing in the same system. You know, those would definitely influence each other, maybe even across time. They were had a hard time predicting change or even had smaller effects predicting outcome variables two years later. But I just think that does indicate the amount of like how important the relationship is in and of itself, how important that relationship system is in and of itself. Well, and also to speak to your question, Patricia, that if they're less able to predict change over time, there must be something that they're not capturing in these baseline self-report measures about their behavioral process, how they're interacting with each other, that, that it's possible that is a stronger predictor of what the relationship evolves as over time that Jacob can see in his clinical space when he's working with couples that these studies probably didn't capture from a self-report perspective. Yeah. Thank you. I will step back from the cliff of abandoning systems theory. <laughs> oh yeah, because you we wow. better not abandon it. <laughs> wow, that happened so fast though. If the authors are still listening, if they got through my method description, you almost you almost led a scholar to give up her entire theoretical orientation. And then she pulled back. Oh my goodness, what powerful science. <laughs> I know. We had a real moment here today in the academic deep dive. <laughs> Woohoo! Boo! Finally time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us over social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good advice, believe it or not. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you. What, there's a ghost in here? (laughs) To decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the tweeters, the Instagrams, the Facebooks, all of those social medias, or just go straight to our website, attachpodcast.com and send us a message. So today we're going to talk about some advice I found, surprise, surprise, on my new obsession of the TikToks. So the first one is at Ian Paget or Paget underscore. Um, he is talking in response to someone that asked, what is the difference between trust and knowing. And after he talks, I forward to hearing what you guys think. So I'm doing a response video to the what's the difference between trust and knowing video that we posted on our joint account on Chris's. And I took some time and I really thought about it and I wanted to be clear because it was such a deep question and I had to decide what all that was in the morning before my coffee. Um, But this is what I think. I don't think they're the same thing. I think knowing just requires more knowing and has ego involved. And we think exactly. And so if we think knowing brings us uh, peace, I actually think it takes away discovery and curiosity. But when you have trust, at least in a relationship, if you trust, you allow for more freedom, discovery, curiosity. But if you know everything and you need to know everything about the other person, you don't really allow for any newness. And I think that's a feature of modern love. So what do you guys think? Good or bad advice? The idea of the difference between knowing and trust. 
So before I weigh in on whether it's good or bad, I want to make sure I'm operating from some more specific definitions because he was kind of blurry on his definitions going back and forth. So from what I understood, trust is I can trust my partner and I don't need to know everything that happens in their life all the time. Knowing is I need to know what they're doing, when they're doing it, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, whenever I want to know that. And so that's that's my understanding. Yeah. And so in that case, I'm going to say good advice, right? I think that trusting and knowing as I, his deep question that he got are in, in those definition, two things, right? If I trust my partner, that doesn't mean that I need to check up on them all the time. I know that they can have some individuality, some flexibility to go and do their own thing, be their own person, and that they're going to come back to me. And I can trust that they have kept whatever boundaries we put in in our relationship around that. If this idea of knowing of I must be apprised of everything you do, that sounds really problematic to me because Mm -hmm. it's almost this forceful intimacy. I had a professor, Patricia, who would always say, uh, the best way to avoid intimacy is to demand it. Yes. Right? So if you- Who was that again? That was Joseph Wetchler. Okay, good. Yeah. So if you are saying, I must know everything that's going on, it's probably going to set your relationship up for a lack of trust. And then that real intimacy that can come through trust could potentially be absent. You may know exactly what your partner's doing when they're doing it, but you may miss out on that opportunity for them to grow and discover and be you know, who they are and then come and bring that back and share that with you. Right. And that's what he was getting at. So and for the, if you have those definitions, I'm going to say good advice. Good advice, Woods? I don't think it's bad advice. I think I also, I mean, Jacob started with kind of making sure he felt like he was operating from a specific definition of trust and knowing. Yeah. Because I, that's what I also hear in that kind of his answer is that I didn't interpret it at first to be about knowing, meaning knowing everything about my partner and Mm. everything they're doing. I, I do think there's probably not a need to know everything about my partner in order to be able to trust them. I'm not sure that that's how we build trust. I think we build trust through our partner being dependable, our willingness to have hope and believe in our partner, Mm. our partner being available to us and our being confident that they will be there when we're able to turn to them. And so I think it's probably good advice that the knowing of facts about maybe who they are and what they're doing at all times is less necessary for the how we might define trust as as relationship scientists. I agree. So overall, we, we, we're coming at it from different angles, but we're going to say it's good advice. Or good advice words, or, and not bad advice. Or, was that say, was the, we want to stick with these operational definitions. Sarah <laughs> stuck with her. I am glad oh, no. she is starting out I know. two on the fence. On the fence. On the fence. On the fence. She is on the fence. So the next bit from TikTok, this one's a little bit funnier, so bear with me. It is from at the real Indian dad. Are you guys ready? This one's tricky. He's responding to a comment and the comment says, I've been dating a man for 10 years and he still won't propose. What do I do? I think I have a solution for you. Because it's 2020, anything's game. 
So what I suggest you do is in a very contained environment, this is safety first, you start a small kitchen fire. That's all, a small one, small one. And when he comes to put it out, you immediately propose. His focus on the fire might translate into a yes answer. And then now you've got him. This one's oh, okay. good or bad advice, you guys. Uh, I'm going to say bad advice. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love that, that, that a comment and that idea, it's very creative, right? right? It's very creative, but I don't think you should ever have to trick someone into proposing to you. And I also <laughs> think that like, I said this earlier, right? There can be diverse ways to relationship formation that can be healthy. Right. It's okay. I'm guessing that this is a straight relationship where the woman is waiting for the man to propose. If you really want to propose, yeah. it's okay to do it yourself. You don't have to trick somebody into proposing to you. And also, I mean, again, I don't understand the context of this relationship, but there should probably be some other conversations. If you're expecting to get proposed to and it's been 10 years, there's probably some other conversations that you should be having that you're not having before a proposal comes. Or before starting a small kitchen fire. Yeah. So, bad advice. Bad advice, Woods. Yeah, I also say bad advice just because I'm really into fire safety. So, I agree with Jacob's last point there that how we got to 10 years still just looking around and waiting for somebody to propose, there's a lot of other conversations that need to happen. But I also think some of this comes out of this cultural context that we treat proposal as such a nodal event that it it takes on this huge whole life of its own. There's like protocol and there's a lot of cultural meaning around this and that varies across cultures. But I think if you're in a culture where there's maybe some more gender equality going on and this is a heterosexual relationship that I agree with Jacob, it's it's not necessarily that you need to wait for the other person, but it's much more important to be having conversations about where do we think the trajectory of our relationship goes? What are our intentions and our expectations here for, for staying together? So overall, shockingly bad advice. I did like how he winked at the end though. It's very cheeky. So this next one is actually the same person as the first one. It is on Olsen in Chris's account. The question is, ask my boyfriend how he knew I was the one and record his reaction. These are kind of like challenges on TikTok all the time. So Chris asked his boyfriend, Ian, how he knew he was the one, and this is his reaction. You know I was the one. Oh God, this answer is going to be controversial, but we'll live through it. I didn't know you were the one, because there is no the one. That's folklore, that's drama. There's who's in front of me, who becomes someone I choose to share more energy and connection with because of wherever I am in my space. What you really mean is how did you know I just liked you enough to give you more energy. It was when we were just like watching like musical theater videos on YouTube or when I would just look at you and start crying and then like that wouldn't scare you off because I was just like feeling things, you know? I also knew when you were, I don't know, sort of like a beautiful like obsessed with me thing. It's good because you're like jump in the river and I'm like, oh, what river is it though? Anyway, you are the one for me presently, indubitably, but we should have another conversation about people and the one. What does that mean? Oh, I love it so much. Yeah, I love that response. Absolutely my favorite. Good or bad advice, you guys? I am going to go solidly good advice. There is no the one for anybody. There is no one person that is going to fit 
into your like and be the perfect person just walk you like show up like oh you're the one you're my soulmate that doesn't exist right relationships are built through multiple big and small interactions and i like how he phrased you have become the one for me or i don't remember exactly like you yeah. are the one for me now uh, our favorite person esther perel on this podcast Come join us, Esther. She always says, when you pick a partner, you pick a story. And I think yes. that that's the important thing. And as that story unfolds and as you write it together, that's when you can look back on this life of what you've built together and like, oh yeah, this is the one story I wanted. This is the, this is what I was writing that was going to, that's the most important, the, the novel that has the most depth for me. And I think you can become the one, but there's not just one person who can be in that role. And for some people too, there might be many the ones over a course of a lifetime and that's okay as well. Absolutely. So good advice, Woods. Yes, also good advice. We're starting what season two with a great agreement. Like maybe that's maybe that's of things to come in 2020. Maybe 2020 is going to get better since Sarah and I are yes. agreeing on something. Also, maybe it speaks to some relationships just need a timeout. And so we got <laughs> we, we got a break over the summer and things are all healed. Yeah. Sarah, my perception good. of our relationship is was very different than your perception of our relationship. Whatever, whatever you can trust me. I think, <laughs> I think if we learned nothing from the academic deep dive, it's that yeah. there is no single solitary predictor of what makes for a satisfying relationship when we are talking about our own individual characteristics or the specific demographic characteristics of the couple. And so I think if you're able to form a healthy relationship that feels good to you and it feels good to your partner and it's safe, have at it. Have at it. All right, last but not least, this is a TikTok from kind of a trend that's put a finger down. So it's a topic and you're supposed to have all fingers up and then you listen to the audio and you put a finger down if you have done this thing. It's fun, but this one in particular is for healthy relationships. So they're gonna list off about 10 qualities that make a healthy relationship. And I'm gonna ask you guys to take a couple of notes and then just tell me which ones you kind of off the top of your head think might be good and might be bad advice. So here we go. How did you know? 10 signs you're in a healthy relationship. Put a finger down if you enjoy spending time with that person. Put a finger down if you both have equal say in the relationship. Put a finger down if that person respects your healthcare choices. Put a finger down if your partner doesn't guilt or shame you into doing things you don't want to do. Put a finger down if your partner only touches you in ways you want to be touched. Put a finger down if your partner validates your sexuality and your gender identity. Put a finger down if your partner doesn't gaslight you. Put a finger down if your partner genuinely supports your ambitions and goals. Put a finger down if your partner understands that if you've had too much to drink or had too many drugs, it's not time to have sex. Put a finger down if you two can disagree on things without it escalating into violence. So those are 10 sides of healthy relationship thoughts. Jacob. I'm going to go good advice. I'm going to caveat some of them, like enjoy spending time together. So I just want to know when you said we're going to have to take some notes on this. Given Sarah and I's relationship, I knew she was going to be the note taker, so I didn't even volunteer, which is probably bad on my end. Maybe and a I just bit. did it. And, and Sarah just, just did it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so enjoy spending time together. Yeah, you should hopefully enjoy spending time with your partner. Equal say in the relationship. That doesn't mean equal say about everything. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't think in some aspects in my relationship, Chelsea is going to have more say over what happens than I do, right? 
So that might be like when she's pregnant and what she decides she wants to do, right? She should have that autonomy, which they, which they talk about there as well. But also when it comes to more important things like the lawn, I have more say in that because she's not really invested. Damn, she's not even here to defend herself. <laughs> no, she doesn't. She knows I'm obsessed with the lawn and making my lawn look really nice because I'm an old middle-aged man. Who old have you become? I, oh, I have I have fully leaned into like the Midwest thirties, like Midwestern dad. <laughs> Chelsea was jo- uh, joking about buying me new white New Balances last night, so I can walk around oh. in them. Oh no! <laughs> I said no. I will never do that, but I will care about my lawn. I love the advice of respecting healthcare decisions, the advice around consent in a relationship, and the advice around gaslighting. Your partner should never gaslight you. And if you don't aren't familiar with that term, go check out the new album by The Chicks. They have a great song called Gaslighter, which will help explain what that is to you. So overall, good advice. Good advice, Woods. I agree. Also good advice. This is a nice strong list of 10 fingers worth of qualities of a healthy relationship. I will say some of them sound like real bottom line characteristics, real basics. Doesn't gaslight you is like, feels like a really basic characteristic of any person we might want to be in a relationship with. Yeah. So I really, in terms of what makes a healthy relationship rather than what we should avoid for not being in a really toxic relationship, I really think being able to disagree without escalating into violence is very important. I think genuinely supporting someone's ambitions or goals and feeling like your partner will be responsive to you and will be listening and supportive of you and you can rely on them, especially in terms of where you would like to kind of go and head with your own life is really important. And there, I mean, I I really do think each of those is really an important characteristic and hopefully you can um, be putting down all 10 fingers. But I think those feel especially meaningful for defining like moving into a healthy relationship that we enjoy spending time together also. Absolutely. So good advice. I think the only caveat I would say is that enjoy spending time together, but not all the time. Like it's okay to not always not, yeah, always spend, enjoy spending time together because sometimes you don't and that's okay.